Psalm chapter 4. This is a passage that has really stirred my heart in the last week. And, um, oh, it's just renewed again my passion for the Lord. Psalm chapter 4. As you turn, let me give you a little bit of background uh, just very briefly. David is writing uh, from some form of some kind of emotional turmoil here. You, you read it, especially in the first couple of verses. There's something going on in his life. It doesn't specify what it is, but um, he feels that his enemies are mocking him for his faith. We don't know if that's his actual enemies or his spiritual enemies, or maybe it's both. But he feels like he's under some duress, that he's under some um, kind of emotional persecution in terms of his faith. And then he's frustrated, and we'll look at this in a couple minutes, by the state of the world. He's frustrated by how many people uh, follow after what is spiritually worthless and what is spiritually incorrect. And then third, I think he's sad that people are asking about what is good. There's, there's a sense that they want to know what's right, but they don't want to trust in the Lord to learn what's right. Sometimes we see that, and that's frustrating. People are, are seeking something. They're seeking some direction. They're seeking some purpose in their life, but they don't seek the Lord. And the Lord's the only place where you get purpose. The Lord is the only place where you get any sense of direction, any sense of confidence that there's hope and salvation. So David does what any um, believer should do when they feel discouraged or uh, disillusioned or disturbed or disheartened or any other disword you can think of. Uh, as he's kind of frustrated and discouraged and mourning and, and kind of looking at things and he doesn't feel a breath of spiritual fresh air in his life, he does what we all should do. He seeks the Lord. What a gift we've been given to seek the Lord. What a gift we've been given to be able to have access to the Lord anytime we want to come. Anytime we approach Him with a repentant and humble heart. Anytime we approach Him with a desire to trust Him and give our lives to Him. Even, even those who don't know Christ have access to the Lord. And now you say, well, wait a second, access is through Christ. Yes, but if you come saying, Lord, I'm wrong. And Lord, I need salvation, and we repent of our sins, and we come to Him and say, Lord, I need Your grace. There's direct access to God. You don't have to go through anybody. Jesus is the one that has opened up that way. So an unbeliever can go to God and say, I need forgiveness. And a believer can go to God humbly and say, I have forgiveness. Now I have a relationship with you, and I'm able to come. Either way, prayer is an unbelievable privilege, and God is an amazing God. So when David says what he says in verse 1, and we'll read it in just a moment, he doesn't have any drop of uncertainty. There's, there's nothing in verse 1 that would indicate that he's unsure. Let's read the text, and then we'll kind of go through it verse by verse. We won't be long this morning, but let's really take apart this text. Answer me when I call, Lord. We just sang that. O God of my righteousness, you've relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me. not participating here. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Tremble and do not sin. 
Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You've put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, we're just going to kind of go verse by verse and walk through this because the thoughts here are in a progression. And as I said, in verse 1, when you look at it, there, there's no sense of, of uncertainty or equivocation with David. He knows that the Lord answers when his people calls call, and he knows that God will be gracious because he's experienced so many times. So he remembers, he looks back and remembers all the times when the Lord has helped him. How many times in your life has the Lord relieved you in your distress? I've said it before, and I think uh, I'm going to say it again. We literally should make a list. We literally should have a journal of all the times throughout our lives when God has helped us, God has delivered us, God has protected us, God has relieved us, God has has ministered to us. It would be a countless book. God knows how many, but for us, we couldn't even go back and remember all the times. I can't remember all the times yesterday God helped me, but I know it was constant. How many times this past week did God answer your prayer? How many times did you pray something and then a couple hours later you said, wait a second, the Lord just answered that prayer. God, you're so merciful. How, why did you do that? Why do you love me? Why do you care about me? Why would you answer that feeble prayer that I prayed? Time and time again, the Lord does that. If you say to yourself, boy, Paul, all throughout the past week, uh, I just God, I just saw God answer prayer after prayer. I can testify to you right now, standing before you, I kept seeing last week God answer prayer. I was stressed, I'd pray, God answered. I was worried, I prayed, God answered. I needed direction, I prayed, God answered. Again and again and again. So if you look back on the last week and say, you're right, Paul, I remember God answered prayer over and over, then praise Him again in your heart right now. And go forward this week with even greater confidence and greater assurance in your heart that verse 1 is exactly right, that God answers the prayer of His people. Now, if you look back on the last week and say, well, I, don't, I didn't see God answer prayer a lot. You, 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 I don't know. I, I guess I prayed. I guess I, guess I kind of went to the Lord with a couple things, but I'm not real sure he answered. Listen, if that's kind of where you are, that's, that's humanity. But do a self-assessment. How much did you actually take to him? How much did you actually submit to him, believing it had worked? Now, don't just, don't just glide by that question. Don't just dismiss it. Seriously evaluate it. Look back on your last week and say, was prayer a constant? Did you call on his name a lot? Was there a time of serious abiding at his throne? Were, were, were you hungry for him? Did you cry out to him? Were you desperate for him last week? Or was it just kind of eh, a little bit here, a little bit there, and that's about it? See, so often the enemy wants to dismiss prayer as being ineffective. But the reality is we haven't taken the time we really should to actually go to the throne of grace. To pray as the privilege that we have to come to him as his children. To have authorized access. To be able to walk right in. To go right to him at any time. 
3 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Doesn't matter what's going on. As soon as you open up your heart and you start to call on the name, God's there immediately. He's never busy. He's never indifferent. He's never on vacation. Like Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, is your God on vacation? Is he in the bathroom? Where is he? He's not responding. You've been crying for six hours. And as soon as Elijah says, Lord, show them your God, the fire comes down from heaven. That's our God. And you know what? The Bible says Elijah was a man just like you and me. Not you ladies. He wasn't. You know what I mean, right? Elijah was just like us. He wasn't anything special. He was a man who trusted the Lord. And he shows that when you call on the name of the Lord, David says it again here in verse 1, when you call on the name of the Lord, God responds. We cannot overstate the value of that. We cannot, we cannot overstate the importance of utilizing this gift that God has given us. And we're going to reemphasize prayer again this fall. We're going to come back at it again. We want to know how we can pray for you. Every week on that Welcome Center table, there are prayer cards. Use them. If you have a prayer request, fill it out. Drop it in the box. The prayer band will pray for you. If you need a prayer request, you want to email me or call me, send it to me. I'll get it to the prayer band. But listen, prayer is our privilege and prayer is our opportunity. So we want to utilize the prayer cards more. And the leaders and I throughout the fall are going to contact you personally and say, how can we pray for you? What, what do we need to know? How can we help you? If you want to be part of the prayer band, the prayer band is a group that prays for their requests. They're available before and after the service to pray with you. Uh, they, they pr we're going to be praying as a team again on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. If you want to be part of the prayer band, see me. We're going to go back to having a weekly prayer presence. We're going to meet together each week to pray as a congregation. We want to be a praying church. We want to be a house of prayer. That's part of the reason this church started in the first place was to put an emphasis on that. Why? Because look back at verse 1. Because when we call, God answers. What a privilege we have at our disposal. And what's sad is how many people don't know that privilege. Because the appeal of what is temporary and what is material lures people into a very confused and kind of deceived way of thinking. I'm not being critical when I say that. It's a fact. The world is so confused this morning. Every day the news shows us just how confused it is. How everything is upside down. Especially in this country. Think about what we've learned in the past week. We've seen a murder on live TV. We've seen evidence that they're selling baby parts and laughing about the profit. We've seen that we're paying people who are here illegally while punishing those who pay taxes or serve in the military. We're handing our greatest enemy the ability to build a nuclear weapon and attack Israel, and then we give money to them to support it. We're seeing people who are uh, known to be lying that, that are uh, committing illegal acts that are in the position to rule the country. But that's not what's most disturbing. What's most disturbing is the rampant spiritual decay of the world. And the things that we've seen this week and the things that we're talking about are just symptoms of that heart disease. And if you look at verse 2, that's what David's so disturbed about. He looks around and he sees those that are chasing after what has no spiritual value, what has no eternal value, and they're being deceived by sin. Now, as I read this verse, and I want you to really look at it as I'm talking, just kind of ignore me and read it well. As you read this verse, 
I don't think David's angry or judgmental here. I think he's broken by it. I think his heart is grieved like Jesus who looked at the multitudes and grieved because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think David's looking at the world and he's not speaking down at people who are still stuck in their sin. He's pleading with them. He's appealing to their hearts. Look, you're chasing after what, what is not going to have any eternal value. I think the rap that Christians get sometimes is that we're judgmental. We'll look at those people and they're evil and they're lost. And you know what? We do have that mindset sometimes. We do come across that way. Instead, we need to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, give me a heart of brokenness for people that don't know you yet. Give me a heart that's grieved by what I see in the world. Not to get angry and post something on social media and, and declare that the whole world's going to hell. That, that's not what God's calling us to do. God is calling us to pray for our enemies, to love those who persecute us, and to really be broken for people that don't know Christ. And that's what David is saying here. How long will, you on, will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what's worthless? Right now, the world is on a rapid path of pursuing what is worthless. But the Lord has different plans for us, and we're going to look at that in a moment in verse 3. But before we go on, look at one more spiritual principle in verse 2. Because this one can cause us to be more discouraged and I think more kind of disheartened than we may realize sometimes. And the more we're aware of it, the more we understand that this is part of the playing field of being a follower of Christ, the, the less impact it will have on us emotionally and spiritually. In fact, we will start to view it as an additional honor that we don't deserve, but that the Lord is gracious to give to us. So look at the spiritual principle in the first part of verse 2. The principle here is that when we live righteously... When we live holy lives, it will often feel that our spiritual honoring of the word and our honoring of living for Christ is a reproach to others who don't share that desire of their hearts. Now, what does the word reproach mean? Interesting word in the Hebrew. It means that they think we're a disgrace. There will be people around us. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, I don't know. But there will be people around us who look at us and say, you're an idiot. You're a disgrace. How could you possibly believe in Jesus? And they'll dismiss him some way, either as a great prophet or a fraud or, or whatever. We know the things that they say about Jesus. But, but there will be people that look at us and, and they're actually almost, they, they think we should be embarrassed and humiliated. That's the meaning of the word. That, that we should be embarrassed for loving Jesus Christ. That we should be humiliated. That it's a disgrace. That we would waste our time on a Sunday morning and come into this place and lift our hands to the Lord and say, Jesus, it is you. That they think that's a joke. Now, we can get angry about that. But the fact is, it shouldn't surprise us. It's the reason we're called aliens in this world. And it's why Jesus said, listen, they're going to do the same things to you that they did to me. If you love me, they're going to hate you because they hate me. 
if you follow me, if you live for me, they're going to mock you. They're going to think it's ridiculous. They're, they're going to look at you and think you're a joke. They're going to revile you. They're going to curse you. Not because of you, because of me. They Like me, they revile me. They curse me. They, they spit on me when they crucified me. And you know what? If you really live for me, they may do the same thing to you. So just get ready for it. Don't be surprised by it. But that doesn't dishearten us. That just causes us to live more for the Lord. David knew this. David knew the spiritual inconsistency of the people. Can you imagine somebody that loved the Lord so much and wrote songs to the Lord and defended the Lord against Goliath and, and led the nation the right way and had a desire to build the temple? I mean, a man who really desired the Lord, how it grieved him to see the spiritual inconsistency of the nation, how it grieved him to see the king before him, Saul, chase him like a dog through the desert trying to kill him because David was anointed. Or see his own son, who was honored by the Lord and allowed to build the temple, fall away at the end of his life and chase after a thousand women. How it must have grieved David, but he says, listen, that's not going to stop me from following the Lord. Why? Because look at verse 3. This is an amazing, wonderful verse. I have grown to love this verse so much this week. And I want to really encourage you. Here's the challenge for this week. I want you to memorize verse 3. Psalm 4.3, I can't think of a verse this week that will give you more encouragement or inspire you to live for the Lord uh, any more than verse 3. In fact, I, I struggled with the title for this message. Not, titles aren't a big deal, but I wanted something that really fit. And, and I finally came upon the stimulus for everything. Now, why did I choose the word stimulus? Because the word stimulus means something that stirs our thoughts and feelings and incites us to action. And when you read verse 3, verse 3 is the stimulus for everything. It is the, it is the motivation. It's the incentive for how we live. It stirs our heart and mind. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, help us now. I pray it will just blow us away that the Lord would ever set us apart for himself. Read it again. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Read it with me out loud, loudly. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Now, notice the condition. Notice that the Lord has set us apart for himself. That loses some of its, some of its strength. Notice that the Lord has set the person who believes apart for himself. That's true, but that's not what the text says. The text says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. So there are two thoughts here. One is, we cannot be godly without Christ. It's impossible. We cannot be godly without Christ. The Bible says there is none that is righteous, not one person. So any claims of our spiritual resume, of good works, and look at what I've done, and I've prayed this prayer, and I've done this thing, and I've, I've helped this people, and, and, and whatever. Any claim that we can satisfy the perfect, holy Lord of all falls completely inadequate. The fact that we're declared holy, when we trust Christ, the fact that our nature is changed to be holy, the fact that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the fact uh, that fact has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. If we don't have Christ, there's no holiness. So the Lord has set apart the holy man for himself. So what's the second truth? Living in that holiness that has equipped us with is now our responsibility. 
Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. We studied a few weeks ago, and we've referenced it a couple times. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So here's what's on us. It's incumbent on us to hate what is worthless, to hate what is sourced in the enemy's deception, and to love holiness. It is incumbent on us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Think about those words, that you're hungry and you're thirsty, that there's an insatiable need there, that you're looking for something to satisfy, that you know there's a void, that, 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 that you know that something you need is not there. So we're to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's how we become godly. And then the next phrase is such a powerful stimulus. Look at what happens when we do trust in him and we live for him. It says that he sets us apart for himself. Just let that, let that truth sink in for a minute. The Lord sets us apart for himself. It's like an extra privilege that he gives to those who love him and those who walk in godliness. All of a sudden, the relationship that's already there becomes deeper, and there's a closeness, and there's a fresh abiding, and there's a new anointing, and there's a greater understanding of the love and care of the Lord. There's special favor from the Lord. I love that verse, Psalm 35, I read it, that the Lord's favor is for a lifetime. How awesome is that? How, how incredible is that? That God's favor lasts on us forever. You want to be inspired today on this dreary kind of gross Sunday. You want to be inspired? Go on the internet and watch the video of that song that we sang last from that group in Indonesia. Just turn up the volume full blast. Your family won't mind. They'll be fine. In fact, they'll come in and worship with you. Listen to the words that we just sang. Listen to what this says. Who makes the sun to rise and brings the earth new life in every beam? Jesus, it is you. Who turns the day to night and watches me as I begin to dream? Jesus, it's you. Who brings food for my table? Who cares for all my needs? Who walks the road with me and has grown with me through all that I've been? Jesus, it's you. Who sees my brokenness, carries me when I'm frail and weak? Jesus, it's you. Who tells the storm to rest when I'm overwhelmed and cannot speak? Jesus, it's you. And then I love this part. Who wears my guilt on his shoulders? Who holds my heart in his hands? Who takes my thoughts and fears and hangs them on the arms of Calvary? Jesus, it's you. If you're glad for that, say praise the Lord. Jesus has done this for us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve God's favor. We certainly don't deserve God's favor for an eternity. And yet, this is what he does. Now he says to us, look back at the verse. Because that's true, I've set apart now the godly man for myself. So a big question follows. If God wants to set us apart for himself by being godly, then have we set ourselves apart for him? If this is the plan of God, if this is the desire of God, it says in Thessalonians, 
that the will of God is our sanctification. The will of God is that we will be holy, set apart. That's the meaning of the word sanctification. You want to know the will of God for your life? Students, college students, you want to know the will of God for your life? I remember how many times in college I prayed, Lord, show me your will. Lord, show me your will. Lord, show me your will. And it was usually, show me your will. Should I date that girl? Show me your will. Should I take that class? Show me your will. Should I go to Chicago tonight with my friends? That, that, that's not what he wants. The will of God is our sanctification. It is God's greatest desire and God's greatest will that we will be exactly like Jesus Christ. So, if the Lord set us apart for himself, then have we set ourselves apart for him? Do you still love what's worthless? Are you still chasing after what's sourced in deception? Or is holiness your only desire and your only pursuit? If being holy puts us in a set-apart relationship with the Lord, then how can that not be all that we want out of life? It's reciprocal. When, when we're set apart to Him and set apart from the world, then He sets us apart to Himself. But we're not going to be set apart to Him unless we're set apart from the world. And then there's an extra benefit at the end of the verse, which is extraordinary in itself. It says, He hears us when we call. So what do we do with this? Let's, let's bring this down to conclusion. What do, what do we do with this truth? Look at verse 4, because David goes in verse 2 from speaking to people that are away from the Lord and hate the Lord to verse 4 where he speaks to himself. David's giving himself counsel here. He looks at the world. He sees that man is following after what's worthless, what's, what's deceived. He recognizes the truth that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. So here's the action step. Here's, here's where David says, all right, this is what I'm supposed to do now as a follower of the Lord. He says one word, tremble. The word literally means to be deeply moved and to be quaking. The vernacular would be that we're shaking in our boots. Now let me ask a very hard question. Is that how we view the Almighty? Has the Lord become so casual to us? Has the Lord become such a such kind of a, a soft picture in our minds? Because as Lewis said in Screw Tape Letters, when you pray to God, you have an image in your mind. And the enemy tries to distort that image. Lewis says in Screwtape, what a great book that is. He says, get him to think on some 14th century art, like the stained glass in this room. Some, some picture of Christ in kind of some pose that, that doesn't magnify the reality of who Jesus really was. The, the thing that causes pain to hell this morning. When you pray, what do you think of? When we tremble, when we come into the worship center, when we come to praise the Lord, where are our minds? What are we thinking of? What I did last night, Packers game, homework I have today, the work I have tomorrow, the weather, what am I going to eat for lunch? I mean, all these things that are just crowding our mind as we walk into this place. And yet God says, I want you to be focused on me because I want you to tremble in my presence. I want you to fear me. Is that our attitude towards sin? When you sin, when I sin, is it casual? Is it, oops, made a mistake, better confess that one? Or, yeah, I really got to work on that. That's an area of my life that I'm just, I don't have any self-control over. So I really, I probably, probably got to put some more attention to that. Or when we sin, is it like, oh, I've offended the Lord. 
Are we in fear of offending the Lord? Really listen now. Holy Spirit, help us. Are we in fear of offending the Lord? Are we in fear of not representing Christ as we're supposed to? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is living in complete alignment with the Word of God. Wisdom is living unwaveringly for Christ. Wisdom is holding a strong faith. Look at David's words. Tremble and do not sin. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to himself. And if there are five words that you and I need to live by this week, it's the first five words of Psalm 4.4. Tremble and do not sin. Then look at the next line. Meditate. That's an intentional action. Meditate on the Lord. Instead of sin, focus your heart on Him. Focus on His amazing grace. Focus on His deliverance and His goodness and His faithfulness. Choosing to reject sin and walk in holiness is a whole lot easier when we remember that what we've been delivered from. If we're still participating in what we've been delivered from, we will have no appreciation of God's grace because we're not separated from it. But when we separate from it and realize what our old life used to be like and what our new life is now, it humbles us and we meditate on the Lord. And that's why he says what he says next. Look at what this does to our spirit. It creates a calmness and a contentment. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. He tells his spirit, look, if you'll get your heart right, if you'll recognize the greatness of God's gift, if you'll tremble and, and, and move away from sin, and if you will meditate your heart on the Lord, he will calm your spirit. Faith will always calm your soul. Faith will always calm your soul. Why? Because it requires focus on the Lord and confidence in the Lord based on the love and the mercy of the Lord, based on his unfailing past faithfulness, and based on his unbreakable future promises. That's why David says in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am Lord. In other words, he is God and you and I aren't. And when we focus our hearts that way, we come to be still. Look at those two words. It doesn't actually mean be still. It means stop striving. Stop striving. In other words, get your spirit calm. Stop fighting the Lord. Stop fighting his leading. Even when you're in a trial, even when there's discipline taking place, even when there's uncertainty, when you're, when you're unsure what to do next, when you need wisdom, stop striving. Stop fighting the Lord. Stop saying, well, Lord, do this. Lord, do this. Lord, when are you going to work? Lord, come on. Lord, that, that's striving. Tremble. Don't sin. Meditate on the Lord. Focus your heart. Get your heart right with the Lord. And when that happens, your spirit then calms because the Holy Spirit moves in and calms you. The Lord is always working to make us like Christ. And if we get our heart in the right place, He will make us like Christ. But the, the enemy fights that. And our humanity fights that. So there's still another intentional decision. Let's finish the text. There's another intentional decision after focusing our heart and mind. David says to himself and to us, offer another intentional action here. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Living for the Lord is a sacrifice. 
Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's not equivocate it. Let's, let's not soft pedal it. Living for the Lord is a sacrifice. Now, before we start to feel sorry for ourselves, remember what Jesus did. But living for the Lord is an intentional decision, one we have to be willing to make. Putting off sin is, is, is easier because of God's grace, but it's still a challenge for us. Living for the Lord is a sacrifice. So if we're not sacrificing, why? What, what's the motivation? What's the reason why we would not sacrifice? Well, really, it all comes down to two things. If we're not offering the sacrifice of righteousness in our life, if we're not sacrificing to the Lord, if we're not dying to self daily and yielding, and all the verses we talk about all the time, if we are not doing that, if we're out of sync, out of fellowship, not living by the Spirit, it only comes down to two reasons. Reason number one is we're selfish, and reason number two is we don't want to trust God. There are no other reasons. Everything comes down to those two things. We're selfish because we don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to yield. We don't want to give in. We don't want to trust. We want to have our own way. That's built into the DNA of our humanity, but we're not controlled by our humanity anymore. That's why the Bible says don't give any place to the devil, because as soon as we walk in his realm, as soon as we go back to the old way of living, the devil tries to now twist our minds and say to us, this is the right way to live. So do not this week give the devil any authority or influence because it doesn't belong to him anymore. He has no power. He has no power. God is greater than him. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and I pray he fills us. So don't give any place to the enemy because he wants you only to be selfish. And a lot of what causes us to be selfish and not to trust because the two things go hand in hand is, is that we don't believe that the Lord really wants to help us and the Lord really has what's best for us. Anything in your life and my life this week that will bring true joy and true contentment only comes from trusting in Christ. But sometimes we don't believe that. And when we don't believe it, we seek after what's temporary and we seek after what's fraudulent that says this is a lasting pleasure but has absolutely no fulfillment and takes us farther away from him. Think about, think about any sin that you committed this past week. Any worldly pleasure that, that you took for yourself, anything that, that you used for the wrong reason, and ask yourself, did it bring me closer to Christ or did it push me farther away? Did it give me a greater love for the Lord and a greater appreciation of His grace? Or, or did it just kind of dull my spirit so I love myself more? There is no way, there is no way we can live for the Lord and not sacrifice ourselves daily. Please hear that sentence. There is no way we can live for the Lord and not have daily self-sacrifice as a huge part of that. That means giving up our control and our desires, and our selfishness, and our plans, and our independence, and our alignment with the world's value. The word here is not an accident. Look back at it one more time. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. A sacrifice is necessary to become righteous. How do we know that's true? Because Jesus Christ proved it. We are not righteous this morning. We are not declared righteous and made righteous 
if Christ doesn't make the sacrifice. So what will it take in your life today? What needs to be sacrificed? Now, there's so much more I want to be done. Look at verses 7 and 8. We'll pray. Because the Spirit says there are four benefits to living this way. As if we need anything more than verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. You're going to learn that verse this week. You're going to memorize that this week. The Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. As if that wasn't enough. The stimulus for everything. Now the Lord says there are four more benefits. He gives us, look at verse 7, lasting gladness. He gives us an abundance of blessing and joy that surpasses anything the world offers. Third, verse 8, he gives us genuine peace. And fourth, he gives us his safety and protection. So we're not only set apart for him, but he then blesses us. He then puts on top of that, Everything that we think we're missing from our old life that's a fraud, only what he gives us is genuine. Only what he gives us has actual eternal value. Only what he gives us transforms us into what we're supposed to be, which is children of God. So the world says, hey, do this, follow this, seek that, take pleasure in that, live for yourself, do your thing. This is going to be great. This will be your future. You're going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be great. And God says, no, that's all a fake. I'll set you apart to myself if you'll be godly. I've given you everything you need to be godly. I've given you my Holy Spirit so you can be godly. I've given you a way out of every sin so you can be godly. And when you are godly, I'll not only set you apart from myself, but I will give you gladness and blessing and joy and peace and safety and protection. I can't fathom why that wouldn't be what we'd want. I can't fathom why that wouldn't be what I'd want every single day 